welcome back to There Will Be Movies, our podcast covering 25 of our favourite movies from any given decade. This is our third volume where we're covering movies that released between 1990 and 1999. We are currently in the middle of 1997, one of our very few kind of four movie years that we're covering in the span of this entire endeavour that we're doing. This is our 69th episode doing this, (laughs) and we are of course covering... Paul Thomas Anderson's seminal porn epic, Boogie Nights. <laughs> Matthew, yeah. you are my co-host. I am. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm still not fully over the fact that completely coincidentally, Boogie Nights is the 69th episode. So, I, I'm not saying I believe in fate or kismet or anything like that, but hard to argue with the unknowable universe making this number 69. What a fun awesome. time. I mean, obviously 69 was a thing, presumably, in the 70s, but, like, <laughs> obviously it doesn't hit mimetic level until you get to, like, people on the internet. Mm-hmm. I just, just, just a, a thing, like, it's not like they're running around in this and there's, like, a long, in-depth discussion of what 69ing is in the middle no, of this movie. but they wouldn't have known this was going to be our 69th episode when they made that it. That is true. Paul Thomas Anderson was not sat there going, someday a podcast is going to cover us as their 69th episode. If it turns out PTA is, like, our biggest fan, and, like, you know, like, <laughs> shout-outs to him, that would be swell. However, I don't think that's likely. I think it is all a coincidence, but... Yeah, Boogie Nights, one of my favourite films. How about you? I really like this movie. Yeah. It's not my top tier of PTA. I think because I prefer kind of the... the po- like, I prefer Magnolia, but I also understand why Magnolia is not a good movie to cover for this podcast reason, just because it's three hours long and obviously mm. a lot more scattershot than this one is. Yeah, see, this is two and a half, and therefore it's better. It's just science. Okay, yeah. yeah. Anything over 90 minutes, you're deducting like a half star per half hour, essentially. Yeah, yeah. This is this is one of the ones that like, I think we've talked about this sort of vaguely before, but like, it it's one of my favourite films, but it's not one that I'm like, I have to be in the right mood to watch it, you know? this is. I mean, it, it is silly in places, but it is quite an intense watch in general, and it's not something I'm like, oh, I'll just throw on Boogie Nights again, kind of thing, in the same way that I would something like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where I will watch that. At literally any given opportunity. Um, yeah. So psych very, myself up to watch it. <laughs> it's very much a film of two halves. Where like... <laughs> yeah. The, the rise half, and the fall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the rise is definitely the easier watch than the fall is. <laughs> yeah. I think I do tend to prefer PTA when he's less sprawling. Mm. Like, it, it's that kind of like, there will be Blood, the Master, Phantom, Fred that are all very much focused on a performance or like two or three performances versus... Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Inherent Vice, which are like, we have got the best cast possible, but it's kind of hard to kind of like pin down what what the main kind of focal point of the movie is. Like, not to disparage Mark Wahlberg in this movie, but he isn't at the same level as like Philip Seymour Hoffman or Danny Day-Lewis or Joaquin Phoenix. Sure, but also probably his best performance ever. Oh, I, almost inarguably. And I mean, look... I think it's the Keanu Reeves in the Matrix effect, wherein you are playing to his strength of a dumbass who can't act. Like, <laughs> which is which is why it's so interesting that he has kind of like come out on the record and gone like, "I really regret doing this movie," and I don't know if that's like Boston Catholic. Um, I regret doing the porno movie, even though he obviously does all these like movies that are filled with violence and swearing and everything like that. But uh-huh. like, 
it's the porn movie that he's like mm, moralistically I don't agree with yes <laughs> my yeah. decision to do this one the but, puritanicals yeah. so you can you can you can rip someone's head off and you can call them anything you want but you can't uh, you can't have sex <laughs> but then I think Julianne Moore did an interview where she was just like yeah but that's the reason you've got a career so yep <laughs> yeah Jesus Christ so, I mean so I is this the most sort of stacked cast ever. Like, ignore, like, you know, Avengers Endgame has 70 big characters who have 10 seconds each and are not really doing acting. In terms of, like, powerhouse acting, wall-to-wall, this is a stacked fucking cast. I don't think it's the best ever. I think it's certainly stacked in terms of the fact that it's filled with a ton of kind of young actors who aren't that well-known at this point who go on to become like, even bigger in kind of the decades after this. Like, the fact that you have, like, Mark Wahlberg's not his peak yet, Julianne Moore's not at her peak yet, Cheadle isn't, C. Riley isn't, Macy's kind of coasting along, like, 90s stuff, Heather Graham, obviously, this is kind of near where her peak kind of ends, Hoffman obviously has a storming 2000s. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's that kind of thing, where it's, it's more, this cast is incredible at the at the time, this cast probably seems quite easy to get together. Yeah, yeah, so that's what I mean. Get, it's not like get, this. Ten years later, it's like, oh my god, how on earth would you ever get these actors to come together to film yeah. a movie of fifteen million dollars? As in, a thing like, to look seven. Yeah, as a thing to look back on, it's like, whoa! Like you've got everyone. You've got Robert Downey Senior for fuck's sake. <laughs> no one gets Robert Downey Senior. Yeah, and like to save Alfred Molina for like twenty minutes from the end, giving. An incredible performance that will require five to ten minutes of conversation <laughs> to have Thomas Jane as like a throwaway character they introduce three quarters of the way through, and then he ends up being important to that Alfred Molina shit. Luis Guzman just fucking around in the background every twenty minutes, like so many good people, and like Mark Wahlberg's best performance, and I think it's exceptionally funny that he wants to distance himself from it. Because I mean, obviously, because this cast, a lot of this cast, obviously comes back for Magnolia two years later. Because obviously, because obviously, it is like he gets Guzman, he gets Thomas Jane, he gets Philip Seymour Hoffman, he gets Molina, he gets Moore, John C. Riley, Miller Waters. Like it, it, it's interesting that he's obviously keeping on good terms with all these people. Although I think I think the rumbling is that he wanted to get Burt Reynolds back was declined it, even though obviously this won Burt Reynolds a Golden Globe Award it's... and it got him nominated Academy Awards. Is that not the the story that he fired his agent because he was convinced he just made a terrible film and then he hired them back after he got an Oscar nomination? <laughs> he definitely fired them after thinking that he like made a terrible yeah. film. I just um, always think and... that's really fascinating because we always see a film as a finished product and you can't put yourself in the head of the actors who are filming it out of sequence, sort of whatever, however many takes, whatever nonsense is going on. I mean, not something like this, but a lot of movies have heavy post-production, you know, like, so when they're filming it, they have no idea if it's good or bad or not, which is insane to me because, I mean, I understand the subject matter is, is, it could make you a bit squiffy, but like, the number of actors doing good acting would make you think, this is probably good, but no, Burt Reynolds convinced he'd like, had his career killed by being in this dumb porn film. <laughs> the thing is, I could I could see it being on set, and basically all you're doing, especially if you're Burt Reynolds, is kind of, you're just hanging out at pool parties. Because <laughs> yeah. all of the heavy lifting and, like, it, not that Burt Reynolds isn't fantastic in this movie, but obviously, like, his point of view is, like, he does pool parties, he shoots a couple of porn scenes, and he's kind of away from the more yeah. 
dramatically progressive scenes. Like he's not there in the Julianne Moore, Heather Graham, just getting fucking high on coke <laughs> scene. He's the donut not there shop. For, <laughs> yeah, he's not there for donut shop. He's not there for Alpha Molina. And like maybe he's just kind of sat there going, like, yeah, I'm just sat there smoking a cigar and looking at people fuck like and cracking onto a seventeen year old. <laughs> Like, what is there to this movie that's particularly interesting? Mm, but obviously, there's, there's a lot to discuss about the movie because it is really interesting. So let's do some background information. This was originally developed as based on a mockumentary short that Paul Tom Sanderson directed whilst in high school, based on the Dirk Diggler story. He then kind of like decided to spin this out into his second picture after Hard Eight, which have you seen? Uh, no, I haven't seen Hard Eight. No, I've not seen Hard Eight. I've, I've seen like literally every other Paul Tom Sanderson movie. It's playing at our local repertory theatre like this month, and I'm like, right, I'm going to finally tick off my last <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson movie <laughs> in terms of that. Yeah, so then, obviously, makes this movie. Obviously, so many people they are kind of chasing to play this role. His original choice for Eddie or Dirk Diggler is Leonardo DiCaprio, Yeah, which would have been interesting, but yeah, I feel... I could see him yelling at, at like, I'm the star, Jack! Like, I could see him doing all of that shit. I don't know about. I don't know if the terrible singing and the dumbass karate stuff works without Wahlberg. Is the thing that is true because, I, especially because like there's a meta textualness to Mark Wahlberg being bad at singing when he is Marky yeah. Mark. Yeah, and but obviously uh, Leonardo DiCaprio would find on the film the highest grossing movie of two, 1997 with Titanic. Yes, just 97, not of all time. Not of all time. <laughs> yeah. Not anymore. Uh, and then obviously Joaquin Phoenix was also kind of approached but he declined it because he was scared about playing a porn star but obviously he goes on to be in multiple Paul Tom Sands movies later on in his career all kinds of people were offered the role of Jack Horner you've got Bill Murray, Harvey Keitel, Warren Beatty Albert Brooks, Sidney Polak but ultimately goes to Burt Reynolds Samuel L. Jackson was offered the role for Don Cheadle's character but he turned it down even though he'd worked together with Paul Thomas Sanson in Hard Eight and the, yeah, and then so that's that's kind of Wasn't, like the, I, I think Drew Barrymore was up for Roller Girl. That would have been good. I I understand all the all the choices that were made and and like you know I get it. Like I think a lot of people were hesitant to play a porn star, and it's like get over it. Like read the script. Like don't, if he if he just elevated pitching you, yeah, you're gonna play a porn star. You're gonna wear a ten inch prosthetic penis at the end. I can understand the trepidation, but like you know, it's very clear that this is pure unadulterated Oscar bait like yeah I mean it's, it's a rise and fall but it, like, you could imagine this movie being made about any other industry and they would be falling over themselves if this was just a movie about a young um, film star rather than a young porn star yeah and like, like it, falling over themselves to give this thing best picture yeah and it's like come on he barely I mean yeah you see the prosthetic dick at the end and there's like the faintest hint of, of, you know, his first scene with Amber. But other than that, like, he does fuck all. Like, like he's he's in his, his underwear quite a lot, but Marky Mark was a fucking Calvin Klein model. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, <laughs> it's just double movie, standards. For a movie that is sensibly about porn, yeah. there really isn't that much porn. And most of it is done by actual porn stars. <laughs> Like yeah, little, little like, Bill's wife and, and yeah, all of that stuff. So this movie releases September 11th, 1997 at the Toronto International Film Festival. Mm. Uh, opens in a uh, limited capacity on October 10th, 1997. Opens wide on October 31st, 1997. So Matt, why don't you give us a rundown of how this movie fared <laughs> at either weekend? Well, that limited release in, I believe, two theatres <laughs> uh, did not do it any favours as it opens... 
with $50,000 at number 43. 42 places behind Kiss the Girls, which made $11 million that weekend. Also in the top 10 that weekend, Seven Years in Tibet, Soul Food, In-N-Out, The Peacemaker, Rocket Man, LA Confidential, The Edge, Most Wanted, and Gang-Related. Not, like, a stellar top 10 there. It's, it's, yeah, I don't know what was going on there. But yeah, I mean, it gradually opens in more theatres after that it climbs to 16 to 12 and then when it hits like super wide release in 900 ish theatres on october 31st how spoopy it climbs all the way up to number four uh just behind the devil's advocate red corner and i know what you did last summer which was reigning supreme at number one scary movie season uh it has at this point passed kiss the girls which was previously number one yeah so quite a rise in that that month I suppose it's the kind of thing where, much like trying to get actors to sign on, you're like, yeah, it's it's like a dramedy porn film. They're like, oh, okay. I, I just I just <laughs> wonder what they're doing. I th- I have to imagine they're kind of testing the waters because obviously this is an R-rated movie about pornography. Mm. You probably open it in like two theaters in LA. Yeah. It, it's got like a, a body theatre average of $25,000 in that second weekend behind only the ice storm. But yeah, like it obviously, like I have to imagine they're doing it in two theatres just to kind of test the waters, see whether or not, like, right, do we want to open this super wide? And I have to imagine each time they take a step up in terms of theatres, they're like, this thing's overperforming our expectations. Maybe we do chance it and open it in a lot more theatres. Yeah. Um, and then you can see in its release schedule that like it hangs around all the way through the Oscar season and it's kind of like fairly consistent. Yes, it dips down into like the 20s and the 40s, but like you can tell when Oscar nominations and Oscar wins are announced and whatnot in its in its box office run. So it just gets to kind of hang around for yeah. six months of the year. And you would also assume like it probably reviewed well immediately and then people are like, oh, maybe we'll go see that then. We'll find a babysitter and, and <laughs> lock the kids in for the evening. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, it has a $15 million budget and ultimately makes $43 million. Yeah. Like, for, for an R-rated movie in the 90s, like, to, to, to do that kind of number is, especially from a, a director whose only previous movie is kind of this really underwatched thing, is actually kind of impressive. Like, obviously, it's not we're not talking like what we were with Fifth Element last week. Right, so... I feel like, first of all, the first thing I want to say is it's interesting that this movie, like, because obviously in the 1970s, mm. there were two very distinct pornography scenes going on. Yeah, I mean, I think it is very difficult <laughs> to watch now and not get a good laugh out of the notion of people going to watch porn in a theatre and that video was this controversial upstart thing. Um, and and for Jack to be like, I want to make a film that after they've come on themselves, they don't hurry out of the theatre, they stay and watch what's happening. It's like, one, gross. Two, yeah, just a very different time. And like to see the names written on the outside like you would any other film kind of thing. I mean, I know there were like, you know, there were porn theatres kind of thing. It's not like it was like... Yeah, we're going to show Titanic at 1 and Boogie Nights at 10. Oh, not Boogie Nights, but you know, the, <laughs> the fictional films that Dirk Diggler and, and, and whatnot are in later. But yeah, still just a very different time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so interesting to think, because obviously, uh, have you seen The Deuce, the, the, the David Simon New York porn movie? I have not. Uh, porn TV show. I mean, obviously it's interesting, but it's kind of like there is these two gulfs across America which are basically like forcing through uh, this kind of like porn scene, and obviously, it, it, as it historically is, you've got LA and you've got mm-hmm. New York that are kind of pushing it through. I think I feel like California is obviously more 
synonymous with film production in people's minds just because of Hollywood, even though obviously New York films in the 70s were this huge, 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 huge thing. Mm. But I feel like the New York image is what you come to when you think of a porn theatre. Like, yeah, I would assume California is also synonymous with, you know, it feels weird to say tech, but, you know, VHS uh, and then, you know, famously the porn industry is what led to the rise of Blu-ray and, and stuff like that. Whereas New York is a little bit more traditional, stuck in its ways. So, yeah, I could see them clinging to the theatres and, like, you know, we, we watched The Departed in Volume 2, and, and that is set in Boston. But that's set, like, now-ish, isn't it? And he still goes to see. <laughs> like, I guess there are still some lurking around. I mean, there's there's some in London at this point. I, okay. They're very, like, off-the-beaten-track. Like, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you go to Amsterdam, there's all kinds of places <laughs> that still do, do porn theatres. Like, it's still a thing, but it's yeah, definitely... Yeah. The tone of them has definitely changed, where it definitely feels like it's more of a gay cruising spot for a lot of them now yeah. than it is a kind of a thing for a a couple or a heterosexual guy yeah, to go like, and, to go and that's the thing like seeing that couple run hand in hand towards the theatre kind of thing I've seen various things over the years of, of like you know the, the popularity of, of, of all of this sort of stuff and it's like the notion of a not a completely packed house but like lots of people there and like as a as a group activity almost versus like I imagine it to be more like in the departed where it's like three people and like they're all being weird <laughs> yeah like like, okay. as a, like as opposed to this isn't almost like this isn't a kink to be scared of this is just an open activity that maybe you do on like a saturday night is yeah, you go like, with you go with the the 30 other people that feel like going to watch a dirk ziggler movie and jacking off and then never making eye contact with them <laughs> Yeah, versus like, you know, dark glasses, baseball cap kind of thing, like hide who you are, sit nowhere near anyone else. Interesting to think that probably around the time this movie comes out is obviously when you have events like Paul Rubens mm. obviously gets caught in a in a porn theatre masturbating mm. and he obviously gets arrested in like 1991 and so there is this kind of... A clampdown. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if that is like this puritanical clampdown after the 70s, where obviously I feel like in these big cities in America, like there's obviously it's the golden age of cinema for in yes. a lot of ways for for American cinema is the 1970s. And all lots, a lot of it is kind of more adult fare. And there was obviously this kind of like sea change in terms of moralism around these things or or the depiction of them that kind of happens across the 80s and 90s, where then it becomes like a, well, mm. no, pe normal people don't do this. No, no. And then the internet just kills it all dead. <laughs> I mean, and obviously you have interesting things where, like, the one kind of normy person that we see in this movie who who kind of spies the porn world is the guy who went to, to high school with Roller Girl. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the kind of the one moralistic handling you've seen where he's like he's perfectly willing to get picked up. Oh and, yeah, oh this and, is this is everything though, isn't it? Like yes. like men hitting on women, they say no and they're like, Well you're a fat, ugly slut and it's like, Well, two minutes ago you wanted to fuck her, so like you're either into that or you're lying. <laughs> and then he gets turned into a vegetable. Um <laughs> So yeah, so and then so before we quickly touch, touch on the movie, let's just touch on what other movies in 1997 were kind of critically acclaimed. Yeah. So we have One Car Wise Happy Together as the most critically acclaimed movie of 1997. It's really fucking good. It, his his kind of gay opus, which problematic in some ways in the fact that like they're not happy together, but I think that's the and people want to see happy gay people. But the title lied to me. <laughs> David Lynch's Lost Highway, Abbas Kiris Dama's uh, Taste of Cherry, Boogie Nights. The movie we're discussing now, Hanabi, Titanic, Gummo, Funny Games, 
LA Confidential, Starship Troopers, and Princess Mononoke. Like a good year at the cinema. Hell yeah. Going to see foreign movies that are a little bit scuzzy. Like it's it's interesting how many of those like could you imagine like doing a double bill of like Gummo and Funny Games? (laughs) Uh, No, I can't. Just a just a terrible like all around if you want to feel good about yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I try to. Uh, and this film only slightly lets that happen. So this film kind of lays its cards on the table in that opening scene. Like mm. it's, it's such a flex of a tracking shot. There are so many of them throughout, but I think I mean the big one is the New Year's Eve scene. But like yes. so many times you just have these long single takes that move through a location and you start it with that with that club um where you know you see jack and amber coming in getting sent to the table you go over to the dance floor with reed and buck and then you swoop back over to where they've been seated and then you know he goes to the kitchen you know all of that like it's it's it is just showing off and like they'll do a few of them at jack's house or dirk's house um you know by the pool and, and moving through a party and then you know yeah the big one is the new year's eve one which again needs about five minutes of discussion at some point but yes yeah. i mean it's very obvious kind of all of these one shots are kind of done i i don't know whether or not i have to imagine that the club is a set in a lot of ways yeah you would think given the freedom of movement that probably wouldn't be possible in a real club <laughs> Yeah, and then also you have to imagine that either either they had the best location scouts in the world to find this house, or again, it's it's another set because mm. again, like it's both of those are the ones where like the really big impressive tracking shots take place, and yeah. obviously we know Paul PTA is a good a good director. We know Robert Ellsworth is a fantastic cinematographer. I like the the collaboration, but it's just it's just so impressive to watch how everyone hits their marks. There's no when the camera arrives, it's like it's not even the fact that people just start talking. It's the fact that we're joining them mid conversation, mm. and you're only obviously you get like the relevant pieces of information, but it's just so well structured. Like it's it's layering in pieces of like character development and stuff like that, and then obviously this this opening scene ends with Burt Reynolds as Jack Horner spotting. Eddie Adams, played by what Mark Wahlberg across the dance floor, and being in, immediately intrigued by him, and <laughs> it, it's it's this part of the movie that always makes me confused. It's because like if I and obviously I'm not a pornography director, but just you can tell about him. Like that guy's got a big dick. I know it. <laughs> that's the thing is, it's like what because I have you have to imagine that like he is intrigued by the way that Eddie, Eddie Adams looks. Mm. Yeah, like that, that. It has to be kind of like, oh, he's a boyish, good-looking person. I wonder whether or not he's interested in doing something. Yeah. But because Burt Reynolds never says, or like, never internal externalizes what he's thinking, we don't know exactly what angle he's going for. Whether or not it's like he's got potential duo to find out. And mm-hmm. then, obviously, when he he follows him into the kitchen, Eddie just kind of goes like, yeah, I mean, you can give me money and then you watch me jack off if you want, like. <laughs> Tend to to watch five just to look at it. (laughs) What are your overheads, Eddie? (laughs) It's so funny because, like, in theory, this is, like, a 50-something-year-old man approaching an underage dude in a kitchen and asking to see his penis, basically. And it's, like, in no way is he getting any... And, like, throughout, like, when you see him directing a, a shot, like... He's getting no personal titillation out of it. This is purely like he sees himself as an honest to goodness filmmaker, and this is purely just him scouting for talent as he would 
if it were a clothes-on movie and he saw someone who he thought looked interesting and he wanted to point a camera at. But just, yeah, you know, like, on the surface of it, it's like, yeah, you are committing <laughs> an offence here. Um, not as bad as the Colonel, obviously. But, you know, them, like, locking eyes while he's, you know, he's like a busboy at a ostensible... Is it meant to be a strip club or is it just a club that happens to have a lot of nudie ladies? I, that's, um, I, that's, that's the thing, I'm not sure. Like, is he working at an explicitly, like, this is where the porn stars go nightclub? Because obviously, mm. like, Buck is there, Reed is there... Roller girls there and roller girls taking orders. Yeah, and it like it's it's interesting to have it be like, is this explicitly like a the side business of this is it's a porn club or is it just the fact that like everyone in this particular scene in LA just knows these people and knows this is like a cool place to hang out. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, and it's, it's it's fun because the movie obviously doesn't explain all this stuff. It just kind of goes like, yeah, you'll you'll get it. You'll you'll either you'll like jump in with the vibe of what we're going for, or you won't. I mean, he says, "I've got a feeling that in those jeans is something wonderful waiting to get out," and then they show you this huge fucking bulge in his jeans. The, the the one thing in this movie that I think my least interested in this movie is with the home life of Eddie Adams, and I understand they need yeah. something that kind of makes him come out, but like it's just such a heightened thing that his mother is playing and not like she isn't good at doing it it's just kind of like at like, this she's point, I'm like so horrible like it, yeah. it, it's it's ridiculous how horrible she is and, and this and, is probably where you probably would have benefited from getting leonardo dicaprio or joaquin phoenix instead of mark Wahlberg. but yeah he's not I bad think, but it's I mean, certainly I, I, some of his worst stuff in the movie it's it's icky as well because it kind of gets into like oh people who do porn only do it because of trauma mm-hmm and it's like, it's just this weird thing. Like, I kind of wish, I don't know how else you handle it, but it's just like, yeah, because he's not even like corrupted. He's like literally forced into this life because someone chose him kindness, and yeah. then his mother is just like, how dare you? Like, it, it, how it, how dare you have casual sex with your sort of girlfriend, sort of not, who tells you, oh, you're so good at it, Eddie. <laughs> and he says his little inspirational thing about, I think everyone has one special thing they're really good at. And his is fucking... Yeah, and then just for her to just completely cuss him out and tell him he's stupid and, like, uh, he's too stupid to even understand what she's saying and ripping down his posters. And, like, it is really, like, sort of upsettingly full-on that she, like, to see a a parent go at their child like that and, and, like, it's stuff like ripping down posters. It's like, that's his stuff. Like, he doesn't have any money. Like, these are the these are his most treasured possessions, and you're just tearing them down. But yeah, like, he's, a, he's, he's essentially made homeless, and is just taken in by this person that was nice to him, and then that person happens to make porn. Yeah, and so he auditions him by having sex with Roller Girl, which mm-hmm. must go well, and then... <laughs> it must. <laughs> and then we kind of get, like, the first actual porn scene in the movie, which is... Mm. It, it's fun to watch the logistics of it all because, again, like as you said before, like Jack Horner is treating this like they're shooting art, mm-hmm. and then you watch what happens, and like that first <laughs> porn scene between Eddie and and Amber is, or Eddie and Maggie is, is incredible mm-hmm. because it's just like it. We all know what porn acting is like, like, yeah. like, and obviously there are like some people who can like who find ways to make porn acting interesting, but mm-hmm. a lot of the times it's like, what is when things get too heavy, we'll stop and do top five favorite porn stars. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I think Julianne Moore like genuinely does a fantastic job of adopting that like tone of voice. Like we've talked before, it's actually hard to act 
like you're bad at acting. Like you, watching Barry, for instance, and seeing them all in the acting class and knowing, you know, seeing Bill Hader do the best acting of his life and then also have to do laughably bad acting in the same show is so impressive and like the bad acting might be more impressive than the good acting but yeah she certain actors are really good at this and like like i said i think porn acting is actually sort of playing into mark Wahlberg's wheelhouse that's probably about the level of acting he's capable of so it's not as funny for him some of the the dialogue he has to say is funny but like julianne moore really like she just adopts that like breathy, stilted tone of voice. Yeah, like I, I looked at a script earlier on today. I'm more thinking about the fact that I have to be ready to have sex in the next like five minutes rather <laughs> than actually saying the lines of dialogue. Like, because I mean, because that's fundamental thing. Like, porn acting is that really difficult thing where it's like, how do you do this if you have to be turned on and remember lines and uh, and forgetting lines and just keeping going. lines and <laughs> potentially not doing any foreplay because you have to get it straight into the the actual act of sex and stuff like that it's yeah don't so stop many, for any reason <laughs> yeah so many things going on and then obviously so it's just this insane thing where it's just like oh you've walked in here and now oh i need to have sex with you to prove that you're a good actor <laughs> i really need this job so it, it's similar to and i assume you've seen Max and Mary make a porno. Yeah, yeah. It's similar to that in terms of, except like the scene where Seth Rogen and Elizabeth Banks have actual real sex, and everyone's kind of going like, "This isn't porn sex, this but it's is actually boring." Kind of <laughs> but it's that same thing where it's like it's not the way that, and I don't know if this is like a twenty first century view on like how porn has destroyed the view on what sex is, and like nowadays <laughs> porn is so over the top and uh, like theatrical and stuff like that. But you mm. watch this, and it's like. This is just two people having, like, an actual yeah. I, session of sex. I think it used to be more like that. I think it used to be just point the camera vaguely in the direction of two people fucking and it is what it is, rather than, like, trying to consider the angles and, like, aiming your genitals in the direction. You know, like, fucking someone at, like, a 75-degree angle that you never would so that the camera can see properly yeah, and stuff exactly. like that. Yeah, and, like, we're not going to frame the guy's face. Like, we're actually going to show two people having sex in... Yeah. in- 70s and like we're not going to have the camera be angled at the guy's like crotch level so you can see a gynecologist <laughs> view of like exactly yeah there's no extreme close-ups that i can see in the movie i mean maybe there are some and they're just choosing not to show them because they didn't want to completely put off the, the actors they did get but like ostensibly it is all just long shots you know, we talked about the the nightclub flex, but there's kind of a mini one here where like they go inside into the lens of the camera and you can kind of see some reflections of some stuff happening and then like having to change the reel and stuff. And, you know, even that is, is really well shot. I mean, Ricky, Ricky Jay is really fun as the camera operator and the yeah. editor. I like, I really enjoy all of his scenes because, again, he's coming at it from this kind of like point of view of it being like the most important job in the world. Like, like when he's telling the two actual porn stars later on, like, yeah, I mean, you know, I suppose it's, it's technically good, but it lacks passion. <laughs> I mean, even even down to the fact that like there's the scene with William H Macy, who we will get to a little bit. Of. Oh God! I like in terms of like number of minutes on screen. I mean, Melina takes it, but like second place for number of minutes on screen versus how good he fucking is in it. <laughs> Little Bill is incredible. <laughs> but the scene where Little Bill walks past his wife having sex on the floor outside of the flats. And they have it in a long shot. In the, you can see the whole thing in the background while they're having this casual conversation. about. He's like, I'd really quite like to not have this conversation here. And then Kurt, like, after they finish talking, wanders down to have a look for himself. Like, that's the thing. Like, 
on some level, this movie is, like, really, like, at times awkward and a bit, like, uncomfortable, and then it gets incredibly dreary and, and, and depressing, but, like, it's also really fucking funny. <laughs> so. yeah, I mean, that, that is a magical trait of Paul Thomas Anderson. It's like he can make these movies that are like incredibly like. I think Phantom Thread is one of the funniest movies of like the last ten years, and it, you kind of have to get on its wavelength to kind of be like, oh, this is a movie about an abusive relationship where both of them want to murder the other one. Hilarious. <laughs> But, but again, it's done in that way where, like, you tell someone that plot and you go, like, how is that funny? In the same way, like, oh, yeah, it's a movie about, like, 1970s uh, excess in the porno- pornography industry and, like, drug addiction and stuff like that. And you go, like, how on earth is that funny? And mm. you're, like, I don't, he, he manages to thread that line, even even down to, like, the, to the the first sign we get of, like, the cocaine being bad is the, the colonel arriving at the, at the kind of the party with this 17-year-old girl whose first words are, like, any coke. Mm-hmm. And... Just does cope his mouth's coke, and then just she's she's bleeding from the nose and the floor, and obviously his own deed. They've got like a guy who takes care of it, <laughs> but it's the guy who like who gives her the cocaine, and they're just like, "What have we told you about making sure you buy the good cocaine?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, "This is the second girl to OD on me in like a week." <laughs> yeah, but again, like it, it, it's 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 different tragic time. <laughs> and, it's tragic and dark, and yet like they're playing it for laughs at a certain yeah. point. But... Which, which makes it so interesting because obviously, like this first scene, cocaine is kind of like we, you, he does that double threat of like cocaine is cocaine can be bad, mm-hmm. but we're going to subdue it with funniness. And so when you get to the second half of the movie and you get kind of like the full view of like what coke does to these guys, <laughs> like, yeah. he's he's seeding it, but also undercutting it in the ways that kind of like make it enjoyable and part of the tone of this this early section of the movie, which is all fun and shooting porn and just kind of like generally hanging out yeah and, and you know like eddie introducing himself to reed and john c Riley just you know it's sort of an understated performance because he's always sidekick and he's the idiot who gets everything wrong but like you know him trying to big dog him and like yeah how much how much do you bench and it's like a ridiculous number and then he's like oh yeah yeah and, and like he's clearly lying and then like Eddie sort of catching on and we're like, well, why don't you say what you do first? And then it's like, all right, same time. And then neither of them will say it and stuff like that. And just, you know, trying to pretend he's the coolest guy in the world. Don Cheadle as Buck is a fascinating character because he just always looks so fucking sad all the time. <laughs> it, it's that weird thing where Don Cheadle, if you were to go, we want to get this movie down to two hours. Don Cheadle is who you cut from this movie. Never. That donut scene is probably the best one in the movie. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of like his actual like sentence yeah, yeah. to the plot, he is like the easiest cut. But as you say, like he's in so many fantastic scenes, like all of the stuff with him learning about like speakers and like Oh my that... god. <laughs> that his dream is to open a stereo store. <laughs> Yet the first time we see him, well second, I guess, we have empirical evidence he knows dick all about speakers. <laughs> But, it's, I mean, it's, but the payoff that is obviously like he's building this up. He's obviously lying about so much of this stuff. He's saying he owns this thing. He's saying that they need to get like this upgrade that like, that, oh, if you know, you know, you can hear the difference between two of it. And then when he's like, right, and now it's time for me to show you what music can sound like on these speakers. He plays like country and western. Yes, he has a cowboy motif for a good long time at that point. You know, you and I have both been in that situation. You pick a song to demo a speaker for a customer. Like, you pick something good and bassy with, like, you know, 
Um, I went with The Neighbourhood quite a lot. That was my go-to. And uh, yeah, he puts on some banjo bullshit and the customer just walks right on out of there while he's got this goofy smile on his face. And then the guy who went to the store is just like, I hired you because you're a porn star and you might attract the ladies. And you have, but like, <laughs> you know dick all about it. <laughs> shut the fuck up. Like, just stand there and look pretty. Yeah, really good. And just like the number of times you see him like at a party, just sort of, he's trying to smile through the pain, basically. <laughs> Until, yeah, like, I mean, until Becky is, like, is lonely enough to also... Yeah, his him. role in this, essentially, for the first kind of, like, half of the movie is to be dressed in cowboy outfits, and then slowly as the movie goes on, try and find what his style is as you hit the 80s. <laughs> Obviously paying off in the donut shop scene, which yes. which comes in the full, but, like, yeah, like, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley are both doing really good comedic work in this. Yeah. Um... I mean, John C. Riley is one of those actors who, like, the fact that he can do both, the fact that, like, this character in this movie is functionally Dale from Step Brothers. Uh-huh. Have like, you seen that a comedian at the at the Oscars skit that, like, Will Ferrell and Jack Black did? I think I have. Okay, well, they were bas- it's basically a big song about comedians, like, you know, they never get nominated for Oscars. And then he sort of comes out of the audience and he's like, be like me, do, be, do, do both Boogie and Talladega Nights. Because that's what he does, you know, he, he will fuck off and do the dumbest fucking movies in the world with Will Ferrell and co. And then he'll go and do something actually genuinely dramatic where he's not doing any jokes. But then even I in mean, something like this, he is doing jokes. It's just he's able to, like, recenter to the tone of the movie. I mean, that's the thing. It's like five years after that, he's in Gangs of New York, Chicago, and The Hours in the same year. He's in three of the five Best Picture nominees. Yeah. Like, genuinely, like, he is he is both a fantastic dramatic actor who can go from doing Step Brothers to We Need to Talk About Kevin to... Anchorman 2 to Guardians of the Galaxy like Guy's got like so much range and can fit into so many different things like he's genuinely like one of the the finest actors we have and but also and I think part of that is because like he is perfectly willing to kind of shy away from the limelight like he isn't gonna not do your movie because he isn't the lead yeah and he is someone who can be your lead I think he just has one of the all-time great like playing off someone or giving other people stuff to play off Kind of thing. I think I, I haven't seen a huge number of things where he is the lead, but they tend to not be as good. <laughs> as, Walk Hard is probably the most noticeable thing, yeah. and obviously that is the the movie that killed a genre. Like you cannot make a musical biopic now because no. Walk Hard just destroys that in terms of like what what it is. They do keep making them though, and they, they do, do keep, keep getting them. nominated for Oscars despite being terrible. Yeah, and like I, I saw Cyrus, and that wasn't very good with him and Jonah Hill. Um, but yeah, he he is just so good at being the idiot friend kind of thing. Yeah, I, like, I mean, again, like you could, I could perfectly imagine a world in which even Mark Wahlberg, with his like modern day sensibility, where he teams himself with Will Ferrell and does does those comedy movies, mm. like th- yeah, all of those scenes, like where they are making the fake kung fu movie in around the porno movie yeah. would fit into a 2000s John yeah. C. Riley Will Ferrell comedy vehicle. Yeah, like the pointless like parkour and the, and the dumbass karate he keeps doing. And I, I love that it's an ongoing thing. Like, he does it in the mirror to psych himself up and stuff. But then every time he, like... It's when he tries to fight the guy at the record label. And every time he does it, he squares up, but he also backs away because it's like very clear this guy is he's like i know karate he's like you don't though do you uh, sorry sorry karate karate yes like just just a classic just posy little dipshit like yeah he clearly like likes watching 
like martial arts movies and it's like yeah no i know martial arts and we all know someone like that um or grew up with someone like that but yeah just it can't be overstated what a tremendous dipshit eddie is like when they're like Oh, are they snake skins? Like, no, they're Italian. <laughs> or, or, or it's something like that. Are they snake? Are they are they lizard or whatever? Like, no, they're Italian. Uh, and oh, what's the best one? It was like when Napoleon was king, everyone was trying to conquer him, like in the Roman Empire and stuff. <laughs> it's like, that's like that's bravo. It's it's that payoff to the mother stuff that kind of works. It's like she calls him an idiot, and like you don't really get a feel for it until he starts like showing you what how little he knows about the outside world that's the thing like he he's he's a quiet kid at the beginning like this is really harsh he's just like a quiet young man who like you know is good at fucking and, and all that and then it's like as he comes out of his shell and he's actually supported and like given a platform to like put himself out there it's like oh you are a tremendous dumbass <laughs> and they do make the comment that like he's got like two jobs and he barely goes to school like he he works at that club he works at a car wash all of that yeah and it's just like yeah just an idiot isn't it <laughs> just no self-awareness whatsoever i kind of wish and i understand why it isn't because i don't think heather graham would be up to it but i kind of wish this movie was more of a examination of what it is to be a male high school dropout porn star versus a female high school dropout porn star. Yeah. And there's like there's like inklings of that in terms of where they're going with it. And like as I said, like there's the scene where they film the the scene in the limo mm-hmm. and the scene where she like runs out of high school because there's the guy who's looking at her like to faking the blowjob. Sorry, runs out. <laughs> runs skates, skates out. Skates out. Skates out. <laughs> the skates which, never which, come off. And there's no is, explanation is, ever and that makes it perfect. It's it's a fantastic reveal because you're not expecting it. That's she just gets movie. up from the desk and skates out dramatically. Yeah, and then later uses those skates to turn his face into mush. Yeah, like, you know, her... It feels like she is more trapped than him. And I know his life doesn't go well, but it kind of feels like he is given a slightly easier time than she is, and I would assume it is the gender divide of, like, you know, he, like, just gets a little bit too into cocaine, but he still seems like he... I mean, he he does have to resort to some quite dark stuff himself, but it kind of works out for him, and she, like, is trapped doing increasingly bad stuff and then has to go back to school kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice because I do think the relationship between Maggie and Brandy is... Mm. Like good and wholesome, apart from the the, the cocaine scene. Yeah, but I, I do I, I like that this movie does find the time to have this kind of like makeshift mother daughter relationship. Yeah, and like Amber, like desperately, like you see it like one of her first scenes. She like after they've gotten home from that club or whatever. Or no, it's when um, I don't know. At some point, she she calls. She tries to call her son, and like he, she's not allowed to talk to him. And then they just sort of park that for a while, and then she just becomes one of the most tragic characters in the movie. I mean, everyone in this movie is fucking tragic, but mm. yeah. and But for a while, it's all good. And like, yeah, I mean, everyone's like, just I, having fun. And like, everyone's like 10% in love with Eddie, including Scotty J, the boon operator. <laughs> I, I love the, the, the porn award montage. I love, I mean, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman as Scotty J. Like, obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman has played gay famously in films like he has he has been Truman Capote Scotty J is such an I, it's obviously not a bad character I think it is like an impressively like humanistic and like compassionate portrayal mm. 
I think Philip Seymour Hoffman pulls it off in a way that I don't think any other actor could. No, I don't. Th- I think if you don't get Philip Seymour Hoffman, you write this character out of the movie <laughs> because, you know, like it is a little bit. He's like very over the top gay and like you know like chewing on the pen and telling him how sexy he looks and like quivering as he holds the boom mic watching him fuck and stuff and all of them buying the same shirt which is a nice little you know like (laughs) it looks better on eddie than it does on reed and then it looks bad on scotty J kind of thing and then like he buys that car and he's like oh i would have taken it back if you didn't like it and and you know culminating in him trying to kiss him um, which I, which I think is kind of the biggest shame is that that's his payoff to the movie. It's almost like we need mm. to get the Scotty J plotline out of the way before the fall, because he's, he's there just, the whole time. Like he's he's in their crew. He's like their third musketeer, but they just constantly tell him to shut up. He's like the he goes from being like I mean he's a boom operator, but he also seems to be a general sort of production assistant, like just does whatever Jack tells him to. He just goes with Eddie, and he's like yeah. Eddie's assistant. <laughs> he goes from being kind of like the eighth lead of the movie because obviously like it's an impressively like deep cast this movie he goes from being number eight to being like not in there at all mm. because they have to find room to get thomas jane in there like the moment thomas jane comes yeah. in he is number three and scotty J kind of does nothing like he doesn't come to the drug deal no i mean i will say this i'm glad that eddie just brushes off that moment like he tries to kiss him he's like what the fuck are you doing but then eddie is broadly kind of nice to him and is like yeah i mean yeah i love you too and we can hug but let's just leave it here. And it's not like he like beats him up for it or anything. And no one like assaults Scotty J for being gay or anything like that. That's that's nice. I mean, obviously, that does sort of happen later to someone else. But given the way gay roles are treated in big movies and stuff, like, it is refreshing. It's depressing, I have to say. It's refreshing that, you know, he has that moment where he t- he shoots a shot and then he just blames it on being drunk and then it's kind of just left there. And then he still gets to be his friend and he still gets to be in his crew. And, you know, it sucks that, like, there's less for this titan of an actor to do after that, but at least the character isn't, like, you know, chastised for it. I mean, if, if not, like, Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't give... Philip Seymour Hoffman things to do later on in his career. <laughs> like, no, no, it's very obvious that like PC, PSH is like one of PTA's muses. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think that's it, it's it's all these little things and pieces where like this and Magnolia are both incredibly messy movies mm. that kind of make the stuff where everything is like firing one hundred percent click. Yeah even more and like one of those moments is the new year's eve party which obviously is when the scotty j kiss happens but obviously like everything changes that night (laughs) yeah like it's it's this kind of like this fun night of debauchery but you've got all these different things going on like there is the scene when julianne moore's son tries to call her to have a conversation and no one can find her because no one knows her real name there's no maggie here and like yeah oh so good and you know, that is where Buck and Becky get together. That is where Reed introduces Todd to Eddie, who will lead them down the path of cocaine and everything. It is where Scotty J tries to, to kiss him. Does Nicole Ari Parker's cat? Becky? Oh, sorry, I've been getting names wrong. Becky is Nicole Ari Parker. Jesse is who Buck ends up with. Becky meets her future husband, I think, at the New Year's Eve party. So it's sort of a mix of good and bad, but then Little Bill. Yeah, I mean, William H. Macy, who up to this point has kind of been just kind of like continually cuckolded by his wife. It, it, 
It's Fargo without the accent, man. It's just this is just what he is so good at. It's what he was born to do. He is literally cucked to death in this movie. <laughs> and like you know, one of the first scenes we see him in, he comes home and his wife is just fucking someone in their bedroom, and they're like, "Can you close the door?" And he's like, "That's my fucking wife." And then he does it. And he does just go and sleep in the other room. And like he does what you know that pool party where like. Everyone's crowded around watching his wife fuck someone. He's like, hey, like almost like, you're embarrassing me. Can you please leave while I have sex with this guy? And then, yeah, he, he in this incredible one shot, walks through the party to that room, sees them. We don't even see it, I don't think. Uh, we see him walk back out, back to his car, get a gun out of his glove compartment, walk back through the party. The New Year's Eve count, I think, I think that hitting... Happy New Year before he does it is actually a good thing. I, I could see directors trying to sync it up where he fires the shots at, at Happy New Year. But I actually think it's a nice touch that like normal stuff is happening and like that's your last moment of happiness and then Bill's going to pull the trigger and everything's going to change. Yeah, it, it, it's it's so impeccably well done. And then the walking out and like shooting himself and then just the, the slam cut into 1980s. <laughs> is and I just and it's just it's such a stark tone shift the movie and such an yeah. impeccably placed kind of like and now everything is different moment like you've been watching this scene and kind of going like oh I can feel things going downhill and then it just escalates and escalates and escalates like but not in a way that I feel some directors would be building tension Mm -hmm. through that entire scene and that's not what pta does it isn't like you've got this knot in the pit of your stomach that things are about to go wrong when it happens it's kind of sudden but when you watch it back you kind of go like everything is there and being seeded and you yeah. can see where it's it's going to go wrong and it's got but little like, touches like he he locks the fucking car again like <laughs> why <laughs> and and yeah just so good and like you know to shoot them both and then to start to walk out while everyone's like what just happened and then just blow his brains out in front of them and then just like the, the only moment of like shocking violence really in the movie apart from the the limousine scene mm, um, yeah and they they've taken the stance 70s good 80s bad in this movie <laughs> which how is how do you feel about that anyway? Because obviously this movie has a lot of, like, we haven't discussed it yet. Like, the two things that we kind of haven't discussed at this point really are Burt Reynolds mm. and the, the soundtrack. soundtrack is incredible. And James Gunn, I assume, <laughs> took all of his inspiration from this movie when he made Guardians of the Galaxy. Down to Rahad's tape is called, like, My Awesome Mix Volume 6 or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and the only crossover song is... ELO, isn't it? It's it Living Thin is the only one that's... I mean, yeah, but then also, like, if you look at all the peripheral Guardians of the Galaxy material, like the various video games and TV shows and, and stuff like that, a lot of these songs end up in that. I mean, obviously, they're, they're both, you know, you're just picking from what are the biggest songs of the era, so it's not like anybody owns these songs or copied them, but, like, for it to be so... You know, you could easily imagine any of these songs being in Guardians and... and um, you know, to play fooled around and fell in love while little Bill's wife is getting fucked is a, is an expert choice. Yeah, the the, the music throughout is is incredible. Um, I mean, there's there's not many movies that can support having two whole soundtracks that are both mm. 
really fucking good soundtracks in and of themselves. Like Empire wow. Records could have done a second one. Yeah. I have to imagine easier for Boogie Nights to do it because a lot of these artists are not the biggest artists of their era. Like, like yeah. obviously, he, you can get an ELO and a, and a Beach Boys, but you only really can get like one or two of them per soundtrack. And everything else kind of has to be people who are presumably past their peak in terms of their fame and are probably eager to, to start. And I can... Eager. I can never tell how big Hot Chocolate were versus, you know, that song is memetic at this point, but, like, was that an easy get then, probably? I mean, the full Monty has come out. Hot Chocolate are so easy on the licensing things, so therefore you can get it in all these places, which is what helps the song become memetic. Oh, yeah, it's really good, and, like, you know, like like Rahad, like, you hear, like, four big songs in a row at his, like, you get Sister Christian and Jesse's Girl and all of that good stuff, and you know, the, to to finish with that Beach Boys song, you know, like so many people have done it, but like it works here really well, and yeah, it's an an impeccably soundtracked movie, which generally gets you on uh, Matt's good books. I like movies with uh, you know that are just wall to wall. I mean, you can go too far with it and just be constant needle drops of bullshit songs, but I think if you just nicely pepper in a lot of era appropriate movie. Uh, era appropriate songs it goes down well with me yeah i think the interesting thing about the structure of this movie is it functionally only takes place in three years yeah like obviously uh, it takes yeah. place over the course of six or seven years but like yeah, yeah, yeah. the bulk of the start of the movie is 1977 mm-hmm. the middle section of the new year's eve parties in 1980 or 1979 going into 1980 yeah and you, then you, you sort of montage jump- your way through that like you know like you said his first awards show where he you know is got so much to say and then after he's won like two or three of them he's like thank you yeah and then you go to the the new year's party and beyond yeah and then it's just it just kind of accelerates to 1983 which is like you get the montage of like everyone using cocaine and it's all <laughs> just every single one of them except <laughs> maybe reed who i mean reed just seems like he's there for a fun time no matter what and like i mean he is you know caught up in eddie's satellite of, of bullshit but like you can literally pick them out one at a time and just see how their lives have gone to shit with possibly the exception of Becky who just gets married and that's just fine. By the by, Scotty J's the worst cake cut of all time at that (laughs) wedding. (laughs) A great little moment for Philip Seymour Hoffman at that wedding. But yeah, like everyone else, like Amber slash Maggie, like makes a real push for visitation. She, She was supposed to be able to see her kid on weekends. That got pulled very quickly because... She says, I mean, I will believe her, but she says she never took the kid anywhere near the porn life, but the ex-husband is like, yeah, you know, that's not an appropriate place for my son to be. Just tragic. And and like, that she doesn't even have a lawyer. And like, you know, she drunkenly or, or highly calls him. He's like, I know a lawyer. I know you think I don't know a lawyer, but I know a lawyer. And then she doesn't have a lawyer at the end. And they just completely tear her apart. It's really rough to watch, and then to cut to her outside crying. The fucked up thing of her basically simultaneously wanting Eddie to be her surrogate son and also wanting him to put his dick in her on the regular <laughs> is pretty disturbing. And then, you know, you you referred to it earlier, the scene with her and Heather Graham just getting high in a room, and, and, and Brandy clearly... We don't know much about Brandy's home life, but her being like, will you be my mom? Like, if I say you're my mom, you just say yes, and, and it will be true, kind of thing. It's, it's 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 funny, it's heartbreaking, it's it's great. It's, yeah, it's compassionate, it's, it's all these things. So, I mean, Julianne Moore is great in this movie, one of yep. the three Oscar nominations that this movie gets. 
Do you think Julianne Moore was better than Kim Basinger in LA Confidential? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I, I, I have no hesitation there. <laughs> no, just because obviously uh, <laughs> you guys have... It was LA, LA Confidential. Yeah, we did LA Confidential for one of the Christmas specials. It yeah. is very briefly Christmas in, for like 30 seconds of the film. Um, you know, I... Yeah, I, 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 no contest in my opinion. I think Julianne Moore is fantastic in this movie. Like, she is, you know, she's given some scenes, but it's not like I, I, I don't quite want to call it unsung work, but she's almost sort of invisibly propping up the movie in places by being a goddamn professional and, and being one of the bigger names. Is, she is functionally the emotional yeah. heart of the movie, and like I know it's gross to kind of like say that, but mm. like. Oh, look, we're putting all this on the woman and like she doesn't get the dramatic things but like she really is like all of the things that kind of like make you, the thing that makes you buy Mark Wahlberg as a star is her reaction to like the sex and stuff like that mm-hmm. and the way that she's like even in the little things where like he she doesn't want him to finish inside her because obviously that's not pornographic and then immediately going like no no we're having such a lovely time I, I want you to do this <laughs> I'll just go for it and then him being like I can do it again if you need me to it's like this kid's gonna be a goddamn star um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and like, and like her making that nice, like, and that's the subplot as well, is that she clearly wants to step behind the camera, like, she makes a little documentary about Dirk, and, like, you see she's the one that's directing Buck's TV commercial at the end, and stuff like that, and I don't know if there is supposed to be a kind of meta-commentary on the fact that, like, you know, there's a shelf life for female performers in a lot of things. I mean, these days you have, you know, as soon as they're over 30, they're a MILF or whatever. But, like, I don't know if the idea is that her star is fading because she's getting older, so she's being forced to step behind the camera, or if she has always had this aspiration and that is why she and Jack... Like, there's, like, barely anything made of the fact that she and Jack are... I guess they're together? But, like, I guess because of the lifestyle they live, like, she (laughs) is all into the free love, but... You know, it would have been nice to maybe see some of that with, like, her trying to learn from him and him, like, dismissing her or whatever. But, yeah, it's... I was, the whole movie kind of hits this point of, like, these guys have been porn stars for six years and I feel like the half-life for a porn star, even in the 70s, has to be fairly short. Like, even nowadays, there's that gross thing where, like, mm-hmm. either you're a lifer or you're in there for, like, a three-year window from the age of, like, 18 to 21 and yeah. then you, you get out because you've basically been used and abused by an industry that, whilst there is work that is consensual and and positive and sex positive there's also an awful lot of we find a bunch of 18 year old girls who are insecure and stuff like that there's a Um, documentary it's like on like there is just like this complete industry that is entirely aimed at like you find an 18 year old you get her to do like three to four scenes and then you'd like stop calling her back basically and it's like once you've done that I mean, it's fucked that it does affect your career and it shouldn't, but it does. And, like, you know, these girls that, like, are pitched the big, you know, you're going to become, insert name of big porn star, and, like, they're not. Because there is just an insatiable hunger for, like, a a, a sort of revolving door of of 18-year-old or 18-looking girls. And then they're just, they're off. And then the men get to just do thousands and thousands and thousands of scenes and no one gives a shit. Which is what's interesting (laughs) is, because obviously this movie takes the point of view that, like, Eddie is going to get replaced by... Johnny Doe, yes. That, yeah, like, he's, he's going to get replaced by Johnny Doe, and, like, that's the first, the, the big blow-up scene, and kind of, like, the last scene, really, with Burt Reynolds for quite a while in this movie, mm. who kind of, like, shuffles out after after this. 
I mean, I mean he gets you know like you you see like you know his relationship with the colonel and then and then you have yeah Floyd Floyd Gonzalez who's like the one who's pushing videotape yeah yeah and they're like they're having these discussions and he's sort of resistant to it and then you sort of see post post that New Year's Eve thing I mean the colonel gets arrested for child pornography and just like a bold thing for Robert Ridgely to take on as he just sort of slow roll oh I didn't touch her I didn't touch her. But then they found, it's just my, I never touch him, Jack, I promise. Like, you know, I would never touch him. It's just, they're so cute. And it's like, oh, <laughs> they're like seeing him getting slapped around in prison at the end. It's just like, this is quite the thing, given that his whole shtick until then is this sort of like, wannabe cowboy millionaire. And then to see him like hard pivot into like, biggest pedophile of all time kind of thing. Yeah. And then like, Jack is forced to go into video as a result and just him... Like him walking through that like warehouse or whatever where they are just pumping out product and it's just like stacking the shelves and you know, you, you, you know, obviously he and Eddie and Jack have like the full on blow up at when you know he's done too much coke and he wants to shoot straight away and all that sort of stuff. But like you do get that sense that like Eddie is getting a little bit too big for his boots and you know, Jack has gone and found some other young kid, this this Johnny Doe, who ends up taking his role in that in the the Brock Landers series. I forget his character name, it's another like ridiculous one, but and he's just clearly shit. And like seeing seeing Jack and Kurt review the footage and it's like, how is it? It's like, well, it's something. <laughs> it's just like it's just clearly like obviously all of it is shit, but this is like a different level of shit. Like you can, I think it's more that you can tell when someone is into, into the idea of doing it, and then someone who's just doing it for a paycheck. And I think it's interesting that this movie is coming out in 1997, and obviously at this point in time, the internet probably is pornographic, mm. but we're not yet at a point where like streaming video and and the such is like a, a a thing that is easily accessible to lots and lots of people because the internet in 97 was a completely different beast. But it's interesting that this movie does start getting into the commodification of sex and pornography and like the kind of desensitization where it's like there's almost like this point where it's like porn at the start of the movie is this thing that you go do in the theater and then by the end of it it's like it's just a thing you have on tape and it kind yeah. of devalues the work of the art and and obviously like porn can be art and it's just interesting to watch that kind of like shifting perspective mm. on it as the as the movie goes through and like it, it's interesting because all the low points are kind of like very different because obviously roller girls is stamping in the guy's head yeah, when she gets sort of convinced into doing Gonzo or whatever, and like you know, Jack is like trying to pitch it. It's like never done before. No one's ever done this. And then like they happen to pick up the guy that was. It is the guy that's doing the blowjob thing at, her at is, the beginning, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And like he, he recognizes her as Roller Girl, and then he just suddenly drops the thing that oh, you're Brandy, right? And she's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and then Julia Moore is in the in this in the scene in the, in the uh, with the lawyer's office and her ex husband. Mm-hmm. And as as you say, like Burt Reynolds is very similar. Where like his again, his is more subdued, but his is more about like walking through that and seeing all the videotape being pumped out and like mm-hmm. watching the the slowly kind of like commodification of the stuff that he's working on and trying to do art and yeah. That it's so assembly line and like you can see the person with the the packing peanuts dispenser behind him and stuff like that. It's all just so robotic. Um, and, and then we and, and then we kind of have the the kind of the the two shocking moments are mm. Eddie as a as a, a prostitute or prostituting himself yeah. to to jack off a people 
yeah. essentially. And then, obviously, like, the, the movie touches on all kinds of themes that, like, can be gross stereotypes, like the guy who's watching him do it um, mm-hmm. and obviously enjoying it in some ways, turning out to be virulently homophobic. Yeah, it's like, you know, is it that, like, he picked him up with the intention of doing this and they're, like, trapping him, essentially, and he's just, like, play-acting? I assume not, because he's not clever enough to do that. Is it, like, I want this, but then in the event that it doesn't go right, we'll beat him up? I think it's the one in the middle of, like, he's told his two friends, oh, I'll lure him out there and we can beat the shit out of him, but brackets, I want to be the one that picks him up because I do want to watch him jack off. Yeah, that's what, that's what I, I, I agree is, is, is the kind of the intentional bit. It, it's just that gross, like, closeted homosexual is very yeah. homophobic is, is overdone at this point. But again, like, it... Yeah. It does show the rock bottom nature of this all because the only reason he's doing this is to afford to pay for the master tapes for oh, his, his fucking singing career. Fucking, you got the touch from the Transformers movie, and I will rock you, he will roll you. <laughs> Just so, 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 so bad. But yeah, and like you know, the the other thing there is that like what what led to that blow up between Jack and Eddie. Eddie can't get it up anymore because he's doing too much coke is the subtext and like you know he's sitting in that car and he's just trying and trying and trying and he can't get hard and he's like telling him to shut up and stuff and yeah he's just coked out of his mind and and his body has betrayed him and that's his one special thing that he can do so he's had that robbed of him yeah and then and then the kind of the, the final piece of the the rock bottom pie for all the the characters we've been following so far is is Buck going to get some donuts so my theory is this was originally intended to be part of the everyone's life is shit montage but it's so good that it had to just stand by itself because you know buck hasn't been a major character and to see like all of the others get this montage and then you give buck this five minute scene and it's just like i have to assume that they wrote it intending to montage it and then they watched it back and like, this is fucking great. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you, you completely ruin the tension of the scene if you're intercutting it with true, true. Roller Girl on the back of the car and and like Amber in the in the custody meeting and. But some of those scenes have do have tension to them, like you know, like. But could you imagine cutting like, away every few seconds? Because like, part no, of I, it, I, like... I know, I know, I know. But like, you know, Eddie, like you can sense something is going to go wrong there. Like the Roller Girl thing. Like what we haven't said there is basically the guy is like roughing her up a bit too much and it's like you know, again she... again it's the whole the whole issue of all of this is like they're doing this with no full play whatsoever and this guy's just kind of like yeah. i'm i'm focusing on my pleasure which isn't and something she, yeah. that a lot of the other male porn stars are doing in this movie and she was like uncomfortable before they started because he'd name dropped that like you know that, that he knew her whereas at least she ostensibly likes eddie etc and she feels comfortable and safe on those sets versus like she's clearly had to be talked into this and she's just going with it to not say no. And then, yeah, it is what it is. And, like, the dude then, yeah, cusses her out, says Jack's films are shit, so Jack tackles him to the floor and beats him up, and then Roller Girl sits there staring. Like, that's probably one of her best moments, actually, is her just dead behind the eyes watching Jack assault the guy, and then she gets up and stamps his face in with a roller skate, and they just drive off and leave him. But, yeah, the donut scene might be my favorite scene in the movie <laughs> it's it's just so good at building tension and like because it's the little things like they're buying the donuts he's remembering his order it's so so nonchalant in terms of like what it's doing you've got you've no idea why the movie is spending so much time on this scene obviously we know that buck has failed to get a bank loan yes they won't lend to a pornographer 
And he's like, no, I'm an actor and you're not being fair. And at that point I was like, does he shoot porn or is he like a recurring, you know, does he just show up and do the like non-sex scenes in Jack's movies? But, you know, either way it would damage him. And like, Jesse is pregnant and, and, and all of this and his, you know, it's not going right for him. And then, That's like, they have this like jolly him. little moment. You know, he, he is an optimistic guy. Like, you know, he has those moments of smiling through the pain. But, like, you know, they go and he, he goes to get donuts and, like, they're talking about the kid and everything. It's all happy. And, like, Don Cheadle just harnessing this tremendous dipshit energy of, like, just perplexed by each donut. Oh, did did you do that for Christmas? I was like, no, they just fucking have Christmas-themed donuts in, in June or whatever for no reason. Yeah, just so good as he he slowly picks out every last one of them, and then the guy storms in with the gun. Then it starts like intercutting with like they're getting, they're getting money from the safe, and Don Cheadle's terrified, and not like wanting to stop the guy. There's mm-hmm. the guy who's eating his donut, who's pulling his gun out of his holster, mm-hmm. and then it just ends in like the craziest. <laughs> yeah, and we you know we talked about in Bound that you you know when when Joey Pants falls in the white paint covered in blood, Don Cheadle wearing a white suit, as this impossible shootout happens where they all clip each other dead cleanly, barely miss Don Cheadle who's left there in a white suit covered in blood, shaking, staring at the money, and he just takes it and goes. And it's, uh, I guess to open his record store, uh, I guess to open his um, hi-fi store. Yeah, and he, he he's moved into hip-hop being his identity this time, and <laughs> is really bad at that too. But, you know, bless him, like, he's making it. So his own way, his own little dream. Um, he's 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 one of the only ones who. Well, I guess they all end up on a happier note, but like he is one of the happier characters. Like as they're going down, like he he's getting denied the bank loans and stuff. But you know he's finally met someone. They're having a baby. He seems in good spirits, and then he does end up getting to open the record store. Versus like Eddie and Amber and Roller Girl and Jack all really truly hit rock bottom <laughs> yeah it, it, it's I mean, obviously in the movie shows this and shows this and it's just like ah one last thing they literally call it one last thing alfred molina <laughs> coked out of his fucking mind in like an open robe and pants as a random chinese teenager sets off firecrackers constantly it's that's the most disorienting thing about the scene yeah. is that like you know that they're trying to scam them with the, yes. the half kilo of baking soda. The Punisher's you know... big plan was was <laughs> to sell them baking soda and pretend it's coke. And like straight up, they are. Eddie asks, like, "What if he tries it?" And he's like, "He won't." It's like, and that's your entire. <laughs> that's the entirety of the escape plan. Uh, and then the guy literally does go and start like very methodically weighing it and everything. <laughs> Yeah, it's like you know there are guns in the room. No yeah. one else is comfortable being in there. It's just it's just so good. Again, like there hasn't been much tension building in this in this movie so far. Mm. And like when the when the violence happens, it's normally not telegraphed, or if it is, it's only very shortly beforehand. But then this scene is like, right, we're gonna break for like 15, 20 minutes of the movie and just do this now. When will it go wrong? Is is yeah. the thing. It's not will they get away with it, it's like when will it go wrong? And like Melina is just you know California rich dude, like just just listening to his tapes, getting high, showing them his anti his like super fancy gun. I think he even mentions doing Russian roulette with the you know, like he pretends to shoot himself with it or whatever, and he's like 
Is that, oh, is that loaded? Not yet. As he's loading it, kind of thing. <laughs> just a heroic performance from just what a great actor he is. Yeah, again, just... as, as you said, like it's it's him and Macy are the two actors who do the most of the least amount of screen time. It's such yeah. an immediately memorable performance, and obviously, so much of that is like the general tone of everything else going around. Like the fact that everyone else is jumping every time a firecracker goes off, and Melina is just like not. not <laughs> this is just my life. This is just Tuesday. <laughs> Like I, I, I genuinely want to know how they're doing that because I obviously like, are they are they adding that sound in in post and they just have someone like highlighting to, mm. uh, like John C. Riley and uh, Mark Wahlberg, you need to jump now essentially. Mm, maybe. Uh, uh, it, but it's just yeah, it just maybe the kid is like throwing something to the ground, but it doesn't actually make a noise, and then they're supposed to like watch for when he throws or something. I don't know, but like. Yeah. Yeah, like, and there's just so much nervous energy up until, like, Melina, like, they want to get in, get out, and just get away with it. And Melina wants to have a hangout. And he, and he's, like, stopping the drug deal so that he can, like, hit the chorus of Sister Christian. And, like, he wants to go and change the song. And he's like, oh, Rick Springfield's a close personal friend. <laughs> and all of this stuff. Uh, lighting a cigarette with a blowtorch. <laughs> when, and, like, when, when his tape suddenly stops, it's so jarring. Because, you know... It has been this sort of, they're getting you with noise, like with the firecrackers and everything and, and the tension and the and the big music and everything. And then all the music just stops and everything is like, <gasps> what's going to happen now? And then he just goes and puts another tape on. But so good. And then the huge shootout. An impeccably constructed scene. Um, yeah. Before we touch on the shootout, what do you think is the meaning of like the, the, the however many seconds the take is of Mark Wahlberg just looking ahead? Okay, now, again, I have a wild theory here. I think that was completely accidental and they just happened to have a camera pointed at Warburg for coverage and they were like, huh, this is a very intense stare he just did here where he looks really, like, you know, just really, truly concentrating and out of it. And I'm like, is this the best acting Mark Warburg's ever done? And I think it might actually have been purely an accident. Um, I mean, obviously, when he finally comes out of that, he's like, yeah, we should go. And it's like, I guess it's like his life is flashing before his eyes and he's like realised, right, okay, I'm in way too deep. I need to stop doing cocaine. <laughs> but I'm open to other interpretations. You know, it's it's, just, it's just a genuinely like, fascinating and elusive moment in a movie that isn't... It's a weird shot, say... right? Like, it really stands out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say that the movie is like laying its cards on the table, but it is definitely the kind of the most impressionistic thing mm. where you have to put... It feels more like latter-day... PTA where like you have yeah. to infer what characters' motivations and what they're talking about are. Um, yeah, it, it's yeah, certainly then, like it's very memorable of, of just like, huh, we've been looking at Mark Wahlberg silent for quite a while now. Still looking at him. Still <laughs> looking at him. Oh, there he goes. <laughs> uh yeah, and then as you said, like the big shootout happens. Yeah. Again, it's very similar to the donut scene where like everyone else but the characters that we like <laughs> ends up dead. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas Jane just takes a fucking shotgun to the chest. He's like, I got this, I've got a single handgun, I've killed his security guard, I'm riding high. Oh, he's gone into his bedroom, where he has an even bigger gun. <laughs> and yeah, and then they just just sprint out of there, and like, you know, Melina shoots the wind, the, the, the like driver's side window just as he's trying to get in it. Yeah, um, and like his, his 1977 Chevy is like yeah. completely like... 
Yeah, like, I don't give a shit about cars, but I've got to admit, when he showed down by that car, I was like, that's a pretty nice fucking car. <laughs> and then, yeah, like, shooting that up. and it's, uh, Does he abandon Reed, or does is it implied he dropped it Runs off into, somewhere? like, someone's someone's garden. Yeah, until, like, yeah, as Reed, the every man for himself kind of thing. Yeah, and that's enough to snap him out of it and go apologise to, uh, to Jack and just break down in his arms. And, yeah, I mean, you're right, we haven't really talked about Burt Reynolds a lot, but, like, it is just this calm constant force throughout and like even like that big scene with the colonel he's just sort of quietly disappointed in him kind of thing he never like hits high emotions except for like when he and eddie have the big argument uh where it's, it's, like, just, it's just such an interest obviously he gets the oscar nomination for this he wins the golden globe mm. and i have to imagine part of that is it's like it's it's a career oscar thing even though burt reynolds is obviously kind of more of a tv schlocky <laughs> yeah like but then he's just he is i mean obviously like Gunsmoke and, and just all these different things that he has done over the course of his career and like he never really had the huge never got his flowers <laughs> well yeah exactly and so it's just it's just that interesting thing where it's like i think the oscars are going like this might be the last time we have to honor but reynolds at a, a, a temp a seminal figure in Hollywood even if they never did. Um maybe they were just huge fans of Norm MacDonald's impression of him on SNL. The cat. It's funny. R.I.P. 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 Norm. Yeah. Um R.I.P. Burt Reynolds as well. R.I.P. Yeah. Burt Reynolds. Yeah, and you know, they kiss and make up and then we get the very brief, the Beach Boys, you know, everything's okay now montage. Starting with the Rodriguez brothers opening a club that says Rodriguez with a Q on it. Which confused me because doesn't Louis? I thought Louis Guzman owned that club that they're always at at the in, at the beginning. So for them to open, I don't know if they're opening a second location or if he was just managing it and didn't own it, and now he's bought he's bought his own club. I don't know, but um, yeah, he's again like he's like twelfth on this call sheet. Good, just doesn't bear talking about. But yeah, like Rollercoaster goes back to school. Buck opens his, sh- his his store. Amber shoots the commercial with Scotty J. Reed does magic. Yes, Reed does magic. <laughs> yeah, that backdrop of Reed constantly doing magic when they're all hanging out, and then he's just basically doing like a, you know, a slightly cheeky magic show with topless girls kind of yeah, thing. It's it's like burlesque. Yeah, and it's like he looks like he's having the time of his life. Quite frankly, it's like good for Reed. Like whatever. I feel like John C. Riley actually knows magic, and I feel like I would go I see a John so. C. Riley magic show. He seems the kind of guy that would know how to do magic. Buck's kid is playing in the pool, and like we we go around the house one more time, and then yeah, Dirk is psyching himself up for you know his return, his grand return to the big time, and we we never <laughs> know what happens. And like yeah, this iconic scene where he just talks directly to Mira, and then pulls out the 10-inch prosthetic penis. Which, fairly ugly. Like, uh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. As someone, someone who has is known for, like, looking at penis aesthetics, like... <laughs> It is, it is a... That's how you've chosen to define yourself. Okay, cool. I don't know, just like, I've done it, just like a a, a really ugly flaccid penis that like everyone else is obsessed with. And you kind of have to wonder, it's like, is this just like straight male fantasy in terms of like big equals good? Of course it is. I mean, we haven't seen it hard is the thing. I mean, maybe it's truly something to, maybe he is a shower, not a growth. A grower, it, looks, it looks so thin as well, I know, which makes I it know. so unappealing. But it's just this like iconic moment in cinema that like everyone talks about. They're like, yeah, when Mucky Mark pulled out the giant dick, like, <laughs> which yeah, that thing is like there, there hasn't been. There's been some female nudity, yeah. definitely not like hitting you over the head with it, and like you're kind of going like, 
Yeah. I feel like there's got to be some dick in this movie at some point. Yeah, uh, yeah. You get like the Julianne Moore side boob, and and you get the real porn stars in at certain points. But yeah, cowards for showing one penis and it's fake. Yeah, and we'll never know if like you know he actually made it all over again. Um, he's dressed all Miami Vice, which you know would have been the era. But um, yeah, it's just it's just an impeccable film from like a technical and an acting standpoint. Paul Thomas Anderson is probably like if you're looking at like who are the best working directors in in the in America right now and mm. like he is easily like the top 5. Like every movie he does is the ratio of of number of them to how good they are is is pretty good in his favor. <laughs> Ever made a bad movie. Yeah. I mean, we're at Again. we're at what 9 9 movies. With, with Licorice Pizza, is that out yet, or is that coming out? Yeah, nine, Licorice Pizza is his ninth movie, which is coming out like in a couple of weeks. Mm. And I and I think people have seen it, and they've said apparently like Alana Haim is like incredible, as is Cooper Hoffman. Oh, it's that one. Like, Ever, everyone obsessed know, with uh, Alana Haim. Yeah, he's just really fucking good at making movies. And why would you rush to make one a year if you're just quietly good at it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And like, he's just, I feel like he's not undersung, but it's just one of those things where like, I remember when Phantom Fred came out and everyone was like, Phantom Fred's really good, but I don't know whether or not it's going to get Oscar nominations. And then like, even though it was like the last film that premiered in award season that year, like it still managed to get into like all the, all the Oscar conversations and is quietly held up as like, probably like the sleeper best film of 2017. Mm. He's, he's just good, just good at what he does. He is and just good. It's so annoying that he was like 26 when he made this movie. <laughs> Devastating is what it is. That's, just, that has been... Like, I, I just... Just one tiny little thing. More... They're not directly comparable, but I can't help but, again, compare this to something like The Wolf of Wall Street. And, like, I I like them more like this than I do, like, Wolf of Wall Street, personally. I mean, they both do a rise and a fall, but I just think there is that little bit more humanity in this. That's, I mean, that's fair enough, but I guess that's the difference is that, like, Wolf of Wall Street is about a man who is literally a monster. Yeah, and oh, yeah. It's amazing. an unapologetic it's a, monster. <laughs> it's amazing that Jordan Belfort agrees to be in that movie when you watch the movie and you go like, no, this movie is not a sympathetic portrayal of you. It's not amazing he agreed to be in it because they gave him money and he still owed money to the government <laughs> while selling millions of copies of his book. Also, uh, he uh, fucking loves himself and the movie makes him look like a goddamn rock star when I would imagine in, like, reality it was a lot less you know, smooth than that. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but yeah, that that has been Boogie Nights. Uh, yes. Our longest episode in the Godland while. Yes, well, second longest movie in the volume, so... True, but we, we spent more time discussing it than Heat, I think. I know, I know. Well, hey, what's going uh, on? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, it's a great movie. Like, it, it kind of, like, if we're not going to do one of our indulgent long episodes every once in a while, what else are we going to do? But yeah, that's been Boogie Nights. Next week, mm. we go on to... What of your choices? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Starship Troopers, baby. <laughs> what well, we would have been in sort of sci-fi corner. I mean, we this, we still kind of are, but there was going to be Men in Black as well. But no, yeah. Uh, Starship Troopers must be addressed. Looking forward to that one. Slightly less intense than Boogie Nights. So slightly? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, that, that'll be next week and it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, we had to talk about the Dutch. Yes, Paul Verhoeven. Uh, quite the career. <laughs> a genuinely fascinating career. Uh, but yeah, so as always, Matthew, mm-hmm. 
will there be movies? Well, continuing to listen to this podcast guarantees citizenship. Would you like to know more? Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>